Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and welcome to another Thursday night of political talk. Proud to be sponsored by Beckman PR, Beckman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. So we got a lot to go through tonight. So I'm talking a little bit quickly. Bunch of great guests, and we're going to really cover the gamut, local, national, Jewish, and otherwise. Trying to meld it all in together, make an interesting show for everybody out there. We're going to jump right in, save the headlines for the end. Hopefully we'll get to them, but I'm sure most of you out there are already following those headlines. Just going to make a little fun, poke a little fun, as we like to do towards the end of the show. But first, we'll start off on a serious note. First guest, uh, we're proud to have for the first time Rabbi A.D. Motzen, who is the National Director of State Relations for Good at Israel of America. Good at Israel had their national convention last week. Traditionally had been on Thanksgiving weekend, but now it's been moved up. Want to anticipate Thanksgiving, anticipate the holidays a little bit more. A.D. Motzen, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure. So you right now, as National Director of State Relations, I imagine you do quite a bit of travel, and right now you are at another one of those great conferences out there. Tell tell us what, where you are right now and what you're doing. I am in Washington, D.C. Uh, right now at the 2014 National Summit on Education Reform. Um, it's sponsored by the Foundation for Excellence in Education. Most people have never heard of that. They may have heard of its founder, however, um, and chairman is Governor Jeb Bush. Uh, uh, we have so we, actually heard of him, yes. So this is an annual uh, event, the last seven years. I think we've, uh, Good at Israel has been here for six out of the last seven years. Fantastic. And uh, Jeb Bush, certainly name is out there regarding presidential politics roulette these days uh, on the Republican wheel. Wide open field right now on the Republican side. But... Just very quickly, and I want to pivot towards our discussion of Jewish politics, as it were, that was talked about last week at the convention, and I think what you ably, some of the things you ably moderated and brought to the fore. But as far as Jeb Bush is concerned, uh, we have talked about him and one of his liabilities or potential liabilities in running for president is around education and he being one of the foremost proponents of Common Core, which is popular in some quarters, but vastly unpopular amongst the Republican base. So is that is anything going on around that at the at the conference? Of course. Uh, he made comments this morning at breakfast. He opened up the event. And uh, as always, he has talked about Common Core. He talks about it openly. Uh, and we can agree or disagree on his conclusion that Common Core is a good thing. Um, but uh, what he illustrates very eloquently is the problem of education in uh United States and what we need to raise uh, we need to raise standards. We need to have uh, a better educated workforce. That nobody can deny. So, A.D., uh, Rabbi A.D., let's uh, let's talk for a second about what you, one of the panels that you moderate, moderated discussions, I guess, uh, and it was a weekend, a full weekend of discussion uh, about Jews and politics and specifically, I guess, Jewish elected officials. And I found a very interesting clip from the Friday morning session about Chil Hashem and Kiddush Hashem, which I think is a big part of Jewish politics and comes into play very significantly. And from your vantage point, uh, certainly something that you're very concerned about, uh, from Assemblyman Gary Scher, who is a New, New Jersey state assemblyman, former mayor of Passaic, New Jersey as well. I think he's also the city council president because in New Jersey you can hold uh, multiple elected positions at the same time, one of those uh, quirks of American political dumb. 
Uh, but let's play that clip for you, and I want to get your reaction. The role of a politician, a from politician, I believe, is first and foremost to protect the interests of the community, to make sure that where compromises are made, that they are not deleterious to the community itself. So I, I think it's a great statement, and kind of like an apple pie statement, right? You can't disagree with that. But when you think about the orthodox politicians, sometimes, and this is going to come up later in the show, people point finger at the orthodox politicians and say, you only taking care of the community. How do you, how do you wrestle with that tension? So, Michael, it's not easy being an elected official. You know that. Um, I have never attempted to run for office, and no matter how many people uh, call me a politician because I'm involved in politics, um, at the end of the day, I'm not a politician. It's not an easy job. I would think that the first responsibility is to have uh, in mind the best interests of your constituents. Um, but the reality is it's, it's often impossible to make everyone happy. So on every issue, you're going to hear opposing views. Uh, how a politician, how an elected official comes to a conclusion of which way to go, you usually have to go with the majority of your constituents, and naturally elected officials will pay closest attention to the, I guess, the specific constituency that helped them get elected. Um, but I would really say the best way to protect uh, our community, which is what Gary Sher was talking about, is, is by, as an elected official themselves, acting in a way that is a Kiddush Hashem, so that whatever they do um, is respected, even if other people don't agree with what they do, they will respect them for what they say and how they act. So let's discuss how things, you had a discussion with regard to should Orthodox Jews run for office and whether that should be encouraged as a community, should the community encourage them, is that good for the Jews, bad for the Jews? We always seem to think of everything within that prism. I have the same way. The first thing, you read a story, wherever it is, New York Times, Political, Wall Street Journal, good for the Jews, bad for the Jews. That's that's very natural. Well, how did, how did you come out on that? You know, did you get what you wanted out of that discussion? So to get what I wanted, uh, the, the purpose was a discussion. Uh, the whole convention theme, for those who may have seen us on uh, all over the place, social media and the newspapers, was what's on your mind and let's discuss it. Um, the idea of the convention was to hear ideas and hear the concerns of, of uh, our community. And one of the issues people were raising was this exact issue of Jews running for office, making a Kiddush Hashem, voting, and, and issues related to politics. So the idea was to have a discussion. Um, there was no preset agenda or a conclusion that a good at Israel had. Um, we had great people in the room. You, Michael, there was Menashe Miller, the mayor of Lakewood. We had Aaron Weeder from Rockland County. There were other people uh, who were um, ele- either worked for elected officials um, in the room. There was a great group of people who really had uh, life experience much much greater than I, ha- than I have um, in this specific area. So it wasn't uh, getting what I want. The goal was to discuss it, and I think we generated great ideas. So from a Go to Israel perspective, and you're out there on many states, how many states do you cover right now? Or I, I guess you're also, in addition to being the national director, you also have some specific states that you that you cover. But how many states is a Go to Israel active in? So that's a good question. We have um, offices um, we say in about nine states, some of them are, are paid uh, full-time or part-time staff. Other uh, areas, it's, uh, it is uh, lay leadership, like Irving uh, Leibovitz is the ch- chairman in uh, California uh, and does a great job at, at representing the interests of the community there. So overall, um, there are nine 
uh, actual states, but they, they serve uh, more than 20 states, and uh, sometimes it's a moving target. We, uh, we get calls from a community that may have one small little uh, uh, pocket of Orthodox Jews, and they call Agoda for help. We will, we will respond and, and, and assist them as necessary. Give us a perspective of the Jewish community out of town versus in town. And when I say in town, I don't just mean Brooklyn. I'm talking about New York, New Jersey. So every place else is said from New York, New Jersey, which has very significant numbers where the Orthodox community has a has can have a real profound electoral impact. And then everywhere else where the Orthodox community can have an impact, but not a profound impact. But there is a lot of activism, and some say more activism, out of town versus in town. You're specifically asking about uh, whether you're asking about voting or just simply uh, engagement in the political process. I was actually I was actually going to get to voting afterward, but uh, if you want to address that first, but let's let's actually get to the in, let's talk about in town for in town versus out of town on an activist level on a good at Israel level. You know, how do you mobilize people out of town? When you said you know there might be a small community and they'll call Agudath Israel for help. I'm curious about what that means and what the implications are. Um, so let's start with that small community. There's, you know, in some some states there may be one uh, city and there's one shul or one day school, um, it's a small group of people, and, and they're looking for guidance of experience that we've had elsewhere, and whether it's a legislative bill or dealing with regulations. Um, so in that case, they'll reach out to our national officer to me, and we'll we'll sit down. We'll usually try to deputize somebody on the ground. Uh, we try to have contacts in every state that there is a from community, and the national contacts uh, get together for for um, calls uh, every so often. Um, but as far as um, bigger communities, when you're out of town, there's a limited number of shoals in the in the, in the schools. And therefore, the organizational structure is much easier to deal with. If you have the principal of the school and five rabbinim in a room, you pretty much have the city covered. And if you want to generate activism, whether it's uh, it's going to ask for the grassroots to get involved or the grass staffs to get involved, you can fit in one room the people who need to be in the room. And it makes things easier. We have maintained contacts, not necessarily shuls, not a good of shuls, but a good of members and contacts uh, across the country. So when uh, issues come up, uh, they are ready uh, to act. And more importantly, they develop those relationships before the problem exists. We encourage them to get involved and get engaged and, and deal with their, uh, introduce themselves to elected officials before there's a problem. Absolutely. And now voting. Well, why is it the perception is, well, actually the reality is, I don't have to say the perception is because I know the numbers, I've looked at the numbers. It Every year, over and over again, and I will tell you that a lot of people took a huge pride about the fact that there was a contested election in Brooklyn for an assembly seat in the 40th Assembly District, heavily Orthodox, huge turnout. And yet the turnout in Brooklyn in general, Brooklyn Jewish community, continues to lag behind every place else. And I'll say as a percentage of registered voters, it lags behind the five towns. It lags behind... Muncie, it lags behind Curiosol, lags behind New Square, lags behind Lakewood, and it lags behind pretty much places out of town as well. I think, you know, I've heard in Chicago that in the from community, it's 80 plus percent of the from people are voting. It might even be higher than that. Why is there such a difference in the voter participation in the Orthodox communities out of town versus in town? Um, I can't or, think about 
or in Brooklyn part, specifically. Although I will say that uh, I think it was 2009, Hamadia ran uh, front page articles asking people why we don't vote, and they received hundreds of letters. And um, I read through that. I kept that uh, edition and uh, several editions. They uh, um, had the actual uh, many reasons why people don't vote, ideas on how to get people to vote, and they were talking about Brooklyn. Um, so I can't really speak to that. That's, uh, if someone wants to uh, discuss that further, it's a great uh, resource because it's from the Hamonam. It's from the people themselves who wrote why they don't vote or why they do vote. I can tell you from out of town in Chicago, as you said, there's a high voting percentage, but it, 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 it didn't happen by, by itself. There's a strong push by the leadership. Um, by the Rosh Hashivas, by the Rabbanim, by the uh, community leaders, it matters. And you matter. Every person matters. And I think they, they get the message across that it really does. And they see the effects um, firsthand, the benefits of being politically engaged. Um, aside from the message that the uh, Gedolim have said, or Moshe Feinstein very clearly talks about the Hakkar Satov one has to have to this country that we're able to vote and that they give us religious freedom, um, we should be partic- active participants in the civic uh, responsibility of voting. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, why that resonates in some places more than others, but uh, at the end of the day, Chicago has a higher voting rate. Um, I know my hometown in Cincinnati, uh, our, my precinct, which is the most, I guess, the most uh, orthodox precinct um, in that area, has an extremely high voting percentage. In, 19, in 2012, I checked the numbers myself. I actually looked at the actual voting rolls. And of the Orthodox Jews who were in town and registered to vote, 95% actually voted in 2012, which is astronomically high. That is definitely astronomically high. <laughs> that's uh, that, that's, and, a, and that's I have, astounding. And I have names. I'm not, you know, the actual names. No, uh, no estimates. Real names. If I'd be really flip, I'd say all 10 of them, but I'm not going to go ahead and, th- and say that. But that's really incredible, and that's a testament to people who really care and feel the impact. And I'll tell you, it, it's really an impact that people don't realize that they have when they don't vote. It's such a negative impact when they don't vote because everybody knows, everybody in the political business knows not who you voted for, but whether you voted or not. And the vo- people that vote are the ones that get attention. And the people that don't are the communities that vote because they look at it in aggregate, not just the individual peoples, are communities that don't get attention. And there are so many, such a ability to have a larger impact through voting than it would be uh, otherwise. And it's really unbelievable when I think about it over and over about why people don't vote. But one thing I wondered over and over as, as you think about the difference between U.S. and Israel in Haredi community, as far as voting is concerned, is you never see pictures, and you talked about Moshe Feinstein, you never see pictures of Gedolim here in the U.S. going to vote. Which That, that was discussed in the Hamodia article as well, um, and I've discussed that with people. I think the hesitancy, although we have everybody putting Tzedakah in their pushkas and taking pictures of Gedolim, but even that, I think for some people, for me, I don't know about you, it, it, it strikes me like you're using the Gedalim, and whether it may be the greatest cause or the greatest tzedakah or voting, which is important, but I think having a letter, a polkore or a letter from the Rabbanim of the town, which in Cleveland, for example, got all the Rabbanim to sign on a letter, that's what Gedalim, that's what the Rabbanim should do. But to use the, them, here's a picture of them, I think that the hesitancy is that uh, maybe people feel it's, it's a lack of perhaps Kabbalah Torah. I don't know. Well, I'm they, not sure I- why. 
No, I, I understand the idea of using that for fundraising purposes and the like. But the uh, but if people know that there are people leading by example that are out there voting, and I should vote because it's important and it's this that important that this Rav is willing is go, ready to go vote and he goes to vote. I, and you're saying that happens in Cleveland, but it doesn't happen so much, unfortunately, in Brooklyn. And perhaps uh, some of some of the Gdolias are not voting. And perhaps that's an example that I don't know. I haven't checked those voting records. Just something that's I'm uh, thinking about now. But we'll have to discuss that for a different uh, session or a different convention. Sounds good. Okay, A.D. Motzen from Agudath Israel of America, National Director of State Relations. Long title, very important and uh, impactful title. Thanks for joining us here. We're going to have you again very, very soon. That would be great. Thank you, Michael. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. This is Spin Class, and we're sponsored by Beckerman. I want to welcome our next guest to the program who has been here a couple times, a very astute commentator, tries to live his life in the center as a Democratic moderate, Dan Gerstein, former communications director for now-retired Senator Joe Lieberman, now professor, of course, at Yeshiva University. Dan, welcome back to Spin Class. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, let's uh, talk about the midterm elections from a moderate Democratic perspective. And I want to just lead off with a our mayor, meaning our mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, going to Washington this week and talking about how the reason that the Democrats didn't win the midterms and didn't do well in the midterms and lost the Senate and lost more seats in the House was because they were not populist enough and then didn't go far enough to the left. Uh, is there? Do you agree with that statement? And what do we do with somebody if, from such a New York centric perspective? Huh. Um, I don't agree with it. However, there is a kernel of truth to what the mayor is saying, but probably not in the in the way he meant it. Um, and here, here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, I think one of the big reasons why. Um, the president and the Democrats have fared so poorly, even though um, they rescued the economy from the brink of a collapse, uh, and there's been pretty consistent, though weak economic growth, and unemployment is down, is uh, most Americans don't feel, uh, particularly in the middle class, that uh, the pie is being shared fairly. Um, prosperity is not reaching them. Um, and even worse, even in light of what happened with the, the crash in 2008, there's been really no change in the power structure in this country or the fact that the, uh, the economy is largely rigged by the people who've captured Washington and Congress and to some degree the executive branch. Um, there, there's, a, there's a sense among the middle class that there's, there's not a, a fair form of capitalism anymore. Uh, and, and if you look at that, the Democrats their populist rhetoric just then rings hollow. Uh, they, they look at all the things Democrats are saying, and then they look at the, what, what's happening with Wall Street, right, and corporate profits, corporate dividends, the stock market, all these indicators of what's going well for the 1%, and they look at the, what's happening in their lives, there's a big disconnect. And that's why I think to some degree um, what de Blasio is saying has some truth to it, but um, it, the problem isn't there, that they haven't gone too far left it's that they haven't been effective in fixing the regulatory capture and the special interest control of Washington, and Democrats have been party to that to some degree almost as much as Republicans. So you're saying that voters in 2008 voted for change, they wanted change, they looked at Obama as part of that change, 
And since they didn't get it, they've now turned on the Democrats because of that. And it's interesting. I just actually want to read you a quote that I saw in an op-ed from the New York Times was it said the biggest reason for the disappearance of new Democratic map is that the Obama surge never actually belonged to Democrats in the first place. It belonged to Obama. I, I certainly think there's some truth to that. And you can't discount the fact that the electorate that showed up in these midterms is not representative of America at all. It's a small subset um, and a very skewed subset of voters. But that said, I think one of the reasons why so many Democrats and Obama voters didn't turn out is because the president and his party didn't deliver on the kind of change people expected. And I don't think they expected liberal change. I don't think they expected, you know, big government change. I think what they expected was that the, the, the ineffectiveness and the corruption and the dysfunction of Washington would change. And unfortunately, and I think to some degree the Republicans are much more to blame than, than the president, but the president is the guy in charge. The buck stops at his desk, and he was unable to move the needle in any way against crony capitalism, against, um, well, you know, Wall Street's dominance of Washington. Um, and I think voters sense that. Um, and that, therefore, the rhetoric is almost meaningless. And again, it's not this left versus right, you know, big government versus small government. I think it's a many, it's basic, um, you know, competence and effectiveness. And to, in that sense, and the, the, the Democrats didn't deliver, deliver the results that people were expecting. But not voting, of course, is a form of, of of voting in a sense, or a vote of participation. I'm, I'm saying when people don't come out, and you can keep blaming low turnout. And yes, it was I think 40 million voters down from uh, from 2012. But that in itself is a choice. And if the Democrats can't motivate voters to come to the polls in the midterm elections or in off-year elections that are that, and that actually happened here in New York. We had the election of several Republican county executives uh, in can, in counties that are majority Democratic last year, uh, Westchester, Nassau, Rockland. Uh, so you saw that voter participation dips in those those times. That is a failure to motivate people uh, to go ahead and want to make their voice heard. And so absolutely, either, and in there's, New there's York, no question about that. And I think that's just you know that's a big failure of the president and the Democratic leadership uh, in Congress. But the Republicans, in fairness, had a much easier task, which is to mobilize people who hate the president, right? Negative energy is so much easier to harness. Uh, and so, therefore, their task was, you know, just to kind of pin everything on, on Obama, uh, play to the, you know, the extremes, most base instincts, um, literally and figuratively, uh, and... Um, and, and that was effective in a midterm election that was, you know, largely a referendum on the president and the economy. In a, a presidential year in 2016, when we're going to have a, a jump ball, that's not going to work. Uh, and, and, and so we focus on the Democrats right now. The Republicans have a much bigger problem, which is they have no agenda. They have no answer, no ideas, fresh ideas to actually address the, the country's problems. Um, and, and then, on top of it, they have demographics working against them that were not in play in this midterm election, but will be in play in 2016. So, regardless of the personalities involved, I'd much rather be the Democrats than the Republicans right now. 
We're talking to Dan Gerstein, a communications guru, former communications director for Senator Joseph Lieberman, a avowed Democratic moderate here on Spin Class. And Dan, give me an idea about from a messaging perspective. Okay, so Republicans don't stand for anything. The Democrats are struggling with the message because they made a lot of their campaign about this war on women, about issues that does really didn't seem to resonate with a lot of voters out there. What does that say about the the next two years? Okay, nobody has any message. There's total dysfunction. Nothing's happening. Nothing's moving. We have all these foreign policy crises going on. Uh, you know, now we have a crisis in Israel as well, and it's the whole Middle East is a is a a flame. And I hate to you know be too dramatic about it, but that seems to be what's going on. North Korea. I go on and on. What you know, what should a voter expect if you expect more of the same from what you're saying? It's just depressing. And then why does that mean that anybody can change anything in 2016? Oh, I think voters should expect worse than this <laughs> for the next two years. Uh, the, the, you know, the president's response to the, the midterms was, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing for the most part. Um, and the Republicans now feel emboldened to be even more obstructionist and uh, polarizing. Um, and so, um, you know, I think this is just going to be uh, two years of constant stalemates uh, and backbiting and uh, positioning, really, for 2016. Uh, and it's a shame because, just like you said, there are a lot of important things at stake right now where the country's desperate for leadership, desperate for, you know, consensus. Um, and, um, you know, we don't have a prayer of that happening. Uh, in terms of messaging, you know, I think again, um, to be to be fair in my criticism, Democrats really don't have much to offer the country either. Um, the both both parties are offering kind of warmed over versions of their um, longtime messaging agenda, um, and neither of which is actually targeted to where the country's at and where it's headed, um, and will actually deal with some of these big problems, particularly what's killing the middle class, which is. Um, where are the jobs coming from? Where is growth going to come from? Uh, and and then, you know, if there are jobs created, how are we going to prepare the next generation of workers to fill those jobs? Um, you know, our education system is completely obsolete for the kind of economy we have now. Um, and yet we're still having these ridiculous fights about, you know, charter schools and the common core. It's the same still groove being played over and over again. All right, let's talk about the 2016 Democratic field, if there is such a thing. Right now, conventional wisdom says Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee. That's it. Primary is over. You might as well not even hold them. What do you say? Um, Well, first, she's got to declare that she's running. And I I know that she's, you know, putting the, the, the pieces in place. But until she actually says she's running, there's always the chance that, you know, faith can intervene or something happens. Um, and I, I particularly believe that, you know, her health uh, has to be a serious consideration, um, and it could potentially convince her to, to not do this. Now, I don't think that's necessarily likely, but that possibility is still out there. The second thing is, you know, we were saying the same thing in uh, the end of 2006, early 2007, uh, before Barack Obama was uh, even um, uh, that's a glimmer in the eye of most voters. Uh, so I, I don't think you can necessarily uh, – there are no sure things anymore in American politics. Um, she is 
stronger than she was in 2007, um, and the rest of the field is probably weaker. Uh, there's not someone with Obama's political skills out there on the horizon right now, but there's a lot of time for that to change. And my guess is there will be a candidate who we don't know uh, or can't pinpoint right now who will rise up and mount a pretty strong challenge to her. Um, and I think the big question for Hillary Clinton is, can she come up with a vision and a message beyond I'm experienced, beyond I'm a woman? Um, because, uh, you know, it's very difficult for uh, a, a presidential candidate after eight years of the, from the same party of the previous president to win the White House. Uh, and so she has history working against her. Uh, and she's going to have to, you know, convince people um, that she can do what Obama largely failed to do. Uh, and that's no sure thing. Now, the it's not just history, I think, right now that's daunting for Democrats. If you look at the map of the country, as far as, if you go a county-by-county county map, there's so much red out there, and uh, I read Ali Lapp, who ran the uh, one of the major super PACs for the Democrats, talked about the fact that Democrats are way too concentrated in urban areas, and not there are just are not enough Democrats in so much of the country. And if you look at the map, the Democratic Party only has control of seven states where they have the governor and the legislature, which that. You know, that, that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult for, for the House to change hands because of that apportionment. But what does that say long term, even for 2016, 2018, you know, as far as the congressional calculus? How difficult is that map and how much of that divide between, or the messaging divide between urban, suburban, exurban, and rural areas? We've seen so much, uh, we, we sort, we started to see a little bit of a purpling of some states. Uh, in the Obama victory in 2008 and then 2012, but that has really gone away. Well, I don't know if it's gone away. I think I think what you, the history of the last 20 years, leaving aside the demographic changes that's happening in the country, is um, both parties both parties basically uh, you know trying to be the lesser of two evils, um, and then once they're in the power, overreaching and voters. Uh, you know, kind of rejecting them um, because they, you know, it's, it's um, not what they not what they voted for. Uh, and you know that we're in the cycle right now where Democrats have been slapped down because to some degree they overreached and underdelivered. Um, and if a Republican wins in two six, 2016 because of that, my guess is given how um, base driven and extreme the Republican electorate is right now, um, a Republican president will probably be forced to do the same thing. And we're going to be trapped in this cycle probably um, for the foreseeable future until there's a someone of stature who can rise above the fringes of their party and really kind of galvanize the largely silent majority um, who are not really, I wouldn't say centrist in terms of ideology, but are just much more pragmatic and independent thinking um, and not so rigidly partisan. and, um, you know, I, I personally believe that there is an opening for a third party or an independent candidate in 2016, which could be a, the, the biggest threat to Hillary Clinton, um, who could speak to all those voters who continue to be outraged um, at um, how Wall Street and big money and interest control Congress um, and how the middle class is continually getting screwed. 
Well, we'll have to wait and see if that emerges over time. So Dan Gerstein, the president of Gotham Ghostwriters, communications consultant, thanks for joining us here. And as we progress, I want to hear that moderate view, middle-of-the-road view, as we go through the presidential sweepstakes. Thanks, Michael. I'd love to come back anytime. Always good to talk with you. Likewise. This is Spin Class, and we are talking politics here on a Thursday night. I want to segue, little move over to a topic that's very important. I should be very important for the Orthodox Jewish community, and that concerns the release of a report this week by a fiscal monitor imposed by Governor Cuomo. Of course, this was waited till after the election to release this, because from my point of view, this was a very damaging report to the Orthodox community and really kind of calls into question the idea of allowing Orthodox Jews to have a majority on a school board, which they do in two communities or three communities in the tri-state area, uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, up in Rockland County, and in Lawrence, New York. And I have on the line Aaron Weeder, former president of the East Ramapo School Board, currently a Rockland County legislator, and as well as the majority leader of the Rockland County Legislature. Aaron, thanks for joining us here once again on Spin Class. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. So uh, I, not only do I want to talk about Hank Greenberg, uh, with the, and Hank Greenberg not being the baseball player, not being the CEO of AIG, but Hank Greenberg, the fiscal monitor who released a report this week about East Ramapo. I also want to play for you a clip uh, from the Brian Lehrer Show, which you called into the other day, actually two clips, and then I want to get right into our conversation. Okay, i got to run the very soon. Uh, Hopefully we'll get everything in. We'll get everything in. Uh, I, I have a lot of concerns about what's happening with uh, the school, the board, uh, being all uh, uh, Hasidic Jews. That's a really big concern. You're really, you know, talking about a community who essentially keeps themselves very separate. Uh, we have many homes being purchased by uh, Hasidic Jews. But, but I want to... Okay, so this is a that seems to be the feeling of a lot of people in non-orthodox people in your neighborhood saying, well, you know, they're here, but they're they're buying up everything, but they don't represent us. We don't want them on the school board. And uh, and essentially now the state is might consider to have a monitor that would have veto power over the school board and their decisions. So what do you make of all this? And I personally and I think you said correctly on that show, they got it wrong. Uh, they got it entirely wrong, and so w- what is it that, you know, what is your reaction to this, and how do we go forward? Uh, let's first talk about what the report didn't find. And, you know, Hank Greenberg, who uh, seems to be very educated, very knowledgeable, uh, very intelligent, what he did say uh was that he didn't find that the uh, board had done anything illegal and um, anything that it can even appear to be uh, not correct as far as the law, the state education law. And that is the major, major factor here because the board has been accused on so many different occasions for doing illegal stuff by, by the public and, and elsewhere, and this is what the uh, report did not find, and clearly stated that there is nothing there. What was very troubling with the report is, and I think 
I, I think what happened here that it was done a little bit too sloppy. And I was very surprised because I'll give you one example, and that's the transportation issue. One of the things that Hank Greenberg talked about was favoritism for the private schools and um, on, 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 the, on, the, on the backs of the public schools. While cuts were being instituted in the public schools, they increased funding for the private schools. And he did mention the fact that it's only mandated to provide transportation for the private schools only two miles. Yet, that is extremely misleading, and that is not true, frankly. The district is mandated to provide universal transportation beyond two miles, I think up to 50 miles, because there was a referendum, and the referendum clearly Plainly was voted many, many years ago in East Ramapo to provide universal transportation for public schools and the private schools. Furthermore, a couple of years back when I was on the board, we wanted to do away with universal transportation for, to save money, and we put it out again for a referendum, and resoundingly, the public schools and, and the private schools, they all voted to not do away with transportation. So what they did is is blame the board for things that are out of their control, which seems to be Albany... Not not is it out of their control, for things that the state, the state is mandating the board to do. They come and say, how come you're not doing it? This is the height of hypocrisy. I'll give you another example. They talked about... um, They talked about cutting... Programs. And one of the major programs he talked about being cut is full day kindergarten. And that was cut, I think, a year, a year ago. What he fails to acknowledge, and that's prevalent throughout the report, he talks about the fact that uh, the board has no feeling towards the public schools. There were no full day kindergarten programs in East Ramapo for the public schools before the Orthodox. And how city board members got elected. I was on the board. The first year that I got on the board, I was advocating and pushing for a full-day kindergarten program that the district did not have. And we provided, we created a full-day kindergarten program for the published schools. Yet, he's accusing the board for cutting this non-mandated program, by the way. All the cuts are non-mandated. But it was the Orthodox board that put it into place in the first place. So you have all sorts of, and, and if you go through one by one of all these so-called accusations and favoritism, uh, the report looks very flinty, it looks very sloppy, and I am surprised and quite frankly even shocked that this is a report that was released by a prestigious entity in the state of New York, being funded by my tax dollars. Well, let's get into the piece that I think is a little more nefarious when it comes to our community. The idea that if you're Orthodox or if you're Hasidic, you can't appropriately represent people who aren't. And, and that's the danger of this entire report. 
and we will draw a line in the sand. If, if, if as a result of this, the notion is going to be created that Orthodox people need to have, Orthodox people need to have oversight in any capacity, it's not going to stop at the school district. In fact, it's not going to stop in East Ralpo. The chancellor quite clearly stated that she is going to move on to Lawrence and look into uh, the Moreland School District and the special ed and the city of New York. When it comes to vis-a-vis the private schools, which we all know is code work for Hasidic and Orthodox Jews. And then there are already people talking about any elections taking place in the Orthodox community. And you know what's so ironic? That we had a neighboring school district that a, a, a half a year ago, a superintendent pled guilty. He was actually charged for stealing millions of dollars. He pled guilty. And where is the state? Is the state coming in with the fiscal monitor sum in a district where they did indeed find illegal activities? The answer is no, because it's not Hasidic people. And the increase in hate on the Internet and social media as a result of this report is chilling. People talk about a cancer. People talk about a satanic cult. People talk about um, that um, this community needs to be... um, uh, um, 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 it needs to be put in place. All sorts of things that I'm very, very scared for my community as a result uh, by, by this. Um, if we have a report that didn't find any illegal activity, and you know what? He didn't even meet with the private school community. He didn't even meet with board members. He only met with one board member. He, he didn't meet with the, um, with the, with the private schools. Um, and he came to a very, very erroneous conclusion. So what, what do we do? What is the next step? How do you fight this? Is there, is there a need to fight this? I, I, don't, I, know. Know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we fight this. Uh, people are very, very scared. Uh, people are calling for all sorts of different things. Um, you know, I, I think we need to have a level, we need to have a level of calm and cool and collectiveness to think about how we approach this because we certainly don't want to increase the problems that this is going to create. Uh, we certainly want to decrease this and, uh, there needs to be a level of, 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 of very, 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 um, you know, uh, People need to be very, very careful what we do, but uh, this has to this has to be challenged. Okay, Aaron, it's last not a, it's not an East Ramapo issue. It's not a public school versus private school issue. This is an existential issue for an Orthodox Jew in the state of New York, as far as I can tell. No, I, and I think you're correct about that. And you know, one thing I, I that, and last question for you. I know I know you have to go. Is Talk about the funding formula, and that's really been at the crux of this issue, about the unfair funding formula of the way the state shortchanges districts that have a large number of private school students 
And the, the chancellor's response was, and the Department of Education's response was, not a single dime without more oversight. Like, we're not going to be fair to you. You have to accept our our incorrect conclusions in order to get that funding, in order to get that fairness. Um, look, I was on the show and I talked about it. The problem that East Ramapo has is that we're considered one of the wealthiest school districts in the state of New York as a result of a very faulty formula, which is a, a, a great travesty, quite frankly, an injustice to East Ramapo. We're being shortchanged by the state of New York. And um, the other thing I was going to say is that the uh, one of the things that the fiscal monitor talked about, that this, this, this community doesn't know how to come together, and this is what we need to do. We need to be able to come together, the public schools and the private schools, completely, completely ignoring the fact that uh, there was a grassroots organization called Community United for Formula Change that included rabbis, Haitian pastors, Latino community leaders, African-American elected officials that collected close to 1,300 signatures on a petition. They traveled up to Albany. I was part of that group. And we traveled up to Albany. We met with the leadership in the Senate and the, and the, and the, and the Assembly and, and, and the chief people of, of the education committees. Uh, and we talked about that we're a united community when it comes to changing the formula. And we have no problem if any money that is going to uh, be increased uh, should be earmarked for the public schools and to restore all these programs. In fact, this is exactly what we would like to happen. Uh, but to sit there and point the finger at a community that is not united when, in fact, uh, a month or two ago, there was this beautiful, beautiful uh, organization uh, that traveled up to Albany, which was united hand-in-hand Haitians, African-Americans, Orthodox, Hasidic, uh, is, is insulting. Aaron so, Weeder, the uh, former president of the East Ramapo School District, currently Rockland County Legislature, legislator and majority leader. Thanks for joining us here again on Spin Class. Thank you for having me on the show. And I want to welcome Uri Kaufman, a trustee of the Lawrence School Board. And Lawrence is that other district in New York that has a majority of private school students. Was not. Hi, hey, Uri, how are you? And I'm uh, good. Good. So let me, let's finish that intro. And uh, just to tell you that uh, Uri, also a community activist, as well as Lawrence, is the has. Not under investigation, I guess, or not under fiscal monitor, yet was lumped in, as Aaron just said, was lumped in by the chancellor, Chancellor Merrill Tisch, as well as the state education department, and saying, well, the solution of a, of a monitor that can veto board decisions, we're going to apply, we're going to try and apply that to Lawrence as well. And I think, uh, as, as we both agreed, Aaron and I both agreed, that that is a pretty type, that is a pretty nefarious type of thing to say that Orthodox Jews cannot or should not polled elected office when it comes to school board decisions. I know people people saying that about senior citizens who don't have children in the in the public schools. Uri, welcome to Spin Class. And what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, first of all, I think we're in full agreement that the idea of undoing an election in any democracy is a pretty radical outcome. And that is why in every other sphere of democracy, removing an elected official is is something that's really, really difficult to do. You think about what you have to do, 
for example, impeach a president. It only happened effectively, successfully once in over 200 years. Uh, you think about what you have to do, for example, a recall usually require another election. And it all stems from this very simple notion that in a democracy, the power emanates from the people. They rule over us because we give them permission. And for Big Brother to step in and say, well, we're going to undo the outcome of this election, that's, a re again, something that's just not done and something that really should be avoided at all costs. Um, I can't speak to all the nuances of East Ramapo. I certainly have my, my plate full in Lawrence. Um, but I, I would just hope that the powers that be would really look at this carefully before they do something as drastic as that. Well, let's just talk for a second about how Lawrence got lumped in, because that in and of itself is you know, a, a soft or a hard form of bigotry. In a sense, they, they said, well, there's another district out there. We're investing in East Ramapo. There's a lot of turmoil there. Let's go ahead and apply whatever we found to Lawrence because the same things must be going on there. And in and of itself is saying, well, you know, we have Orthodox Jews in the school board, so that's a bad thing. Is that essentially what the state is saying? Have they communicated anything to the school district and to the school board about this? Or they're just kind of making it up as they go along? Well, no one has said anything quite as uh, as out, you know outwardly and out, as outrageous as that. I can tell you, as a board member that has been investigated by now three times in the eight years I've been on the board, and each time it was dismissed as frivolous. Um, I can tell you that we do certainly feel like we're under a bigger microscope than other boards. And again, just to stress, um, our board in Lawrence has never had even a germ of scandal in any sphere whatsoever. Um, again, a lot of people raised all kinds of complaints, and each one was investigated. The last time, the people that uh, brought complaints against us actually got sanctioned because the court, and it, re it did reach a court, just said this is ridiculous and this kind of harassment needs to stop. So, you know, in that sense, I would say we've had the right outcome. I mean, there is a tendency to lump everyone together, and yeah, for those listening, uh, Orthodox Jews don't all think alike, and we don't all look alike either. So it is kind of silly uh, to lump everyone together, and it's just as silly to say, well, you really shouldn't be serving uh, on a public board at all. Uh, you shouldn't run for election. This is a democracy. Everybody gets to run. Give us a sense for a second about the challenges, and obviously there are challenges. Uh, give us a sense of even though, even though you have a majority of private school students uh, out there, give us a sense of, of why the Orthodox would want to have a majority in the school board and give us an idea about uh, the, the challenges of managing a school district where uh, with a with a significant, obviously, and, and a lot of schools with a significant number of non-Orthodox students as an Orthodox Jew not sending your kids to school to uh, to uh, not sending your kids to public school. To me, I don't know what the big deal is, right? You have a job as an elected official. You do the job. You do the job that's asked of you. It doesn't take the fact that you have to have experienced something yourself firsthand in order to do that. We don't expect somebody to be president before they're president. Correct. And, um, you know, for example, the president of the United States is the commander-in-chief, and uh, two of the last three commanders-in-chief never served in the military, and no one really thought much of it. Um, you don't have to serve in the military to command the military, and you don't have to send your kids to public school to want to serve your district and to want to make your public school district better. And all we ever said to the public was, just judge us by what we do, uh, just hold us accountable. And I have to say, I'm happy to say that 
the public has responded, and I ran unopposed the last time. Uh, we're at a point now where budgets are passing year after year by the same majority, incidentally, in areas of where the Orthodox Jews predominate as uh, where the public school parents predominate. So, you know, there is a way to do this where trust is built and you run it properly. Uh, to answer your first question, what got me to run, uh, it's real simple. Uh, we had, if you, if you go back to the early 2000s, there was tax revolt across Long Island, really. And when tax revolt hit Lawrence, the board at that time decided that they were going to take it out against Orthodox Jewish parents. And they started denying reimbursement for special needs children in the Orthodox community. And I often say these were the dumbest smart people I ever met in my life, um, because obviously the reaction from the Orthodox community was to rise up and say, wait a minute, we're just not going to take this. And I think there is a fundamental core unfairness in the system as it is, uh, in the sense that we take everything into account except the person's faith. Now, the standard, and, and really what's driving the controversy in Israel at the end of the day is special ed. That's what divides people. And the core issue is this. The standard for special education is what is the, quote, least restrictive environment for a child. That is what we are mandated to do. Now, you take a kid who has, you know, Paeus and a yarmulke, and he speaks Yiddish as his mother language, and you say, well, we're going to put him in a public school setting, and that's the least restrictive environment, and of course that's ridiculous. Anyone with common sense is going to understand immediately that that is not the least restrictive environment. So one would think, given the standard, that Orthodox parents would have the right, the same as right as every parent, to send their kids to places that have an Orthodox environment where they're going to be in the, quote, least restrictive environment. The problem is that under the law of the state of New York, we must take into account their special needs. We must take into account if, for example, they don't speak English. We give them English as a special language. We don't even get to, we even do this if they're illegal aliens. We do this, we accommodate children for literally of every shape and form, no matter what their issue might be, except when it comes to religion. And that's the big exception. We're not allowed to take that into account. And that is because we're in a very, very uh, liberal state where, to be perfectly blunt, I've met many school officials who are, frankly, uh, very scornful of people of faith. And uh, so they feel like, well, this just doesn't count. And, you know, whether one is an atheist or not an atheist, again, I think it really is, it's really a stretch to say that, for example, a Hasidic kid is not going to be in the least restrictive environment in a setting that's more familiar to them and more comfortable for them. And that's really what this is all about. And we've tried to get the law changed, and it hasn't been changed. And um, this is why there's been so much controversy up in East Ramapo. So let me play a clip for you, Uri, because I want to get – I just want to get to a statement that was actually said on the radio. And uh, we played a clip beforehand from yesterday's Brian Lehrer show. And Brian Lehrer talked about the fact that uh, whether – whether we should just allow voting for public school parents. And he asked the question of the chancellor, Chancellor Merrill Titch, and she actually did not respond directly. But I actually just want to get – have the public understand the sentiment out there on this issue. Well, I tell you uh, – Hold I on. Let's, let's just get that clip. I'm sorry. Unseating a school board that's been democratically elected, 
I would say, is something that does not sit well with the sure. and that's, New York that's, State public. That's in terms of the state swooping in and kicking mm-hmm. out these elected school board members. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the rules of the elections for the future. You, you probably know that in New York City, when we used to elect all the local school boards, mm-hmm. any public school parent, regardless of their immigration status, was allowed to vote as long as they were able to demonstrate that they were actually a parent in the, in the, uh, of an active public school student in the district. And I wonder if that's something that could be imposed statewide to make sure that public school parents aren't disenfranchised. So my sense here from that clip is that he was saying, well, you, have to, you should be a public school parent in, in order to vote. He was actually talking specifically about immigrants. But what about that idea that's out there that only parents of public school students should vote in school board elections? Well, you know, talk like that makes me want to dress up like an Indian and dump tea in the harbor. Uh, a long time ago, I learned maybe about in the third grade, and, and maybe the uh, person who said that didn't, that taxation without representation is tyranny. Uh, that is the fundamental bedrock principle upon which our country has been built. And if they're going to tax me, uh, it seems that I ought to have a say in where those tax dollars are spent. Um, and, you know, it's not just about education, although I feel, you know, I'm just as committed to educating all the kids as any public school parent. Uh, there's also other factors to take into account. Uh, we do now give special ed uh, in a fair way and in a legal way to our Orthodox parents. Uh, so shouldn't they be represented? We now give transportation services to the private school parents, most of whom are yeshiva parents, uh, in a way, again, that's legal in accordance with the New York State law. So, you know, shouldn't they get representation that way. Um, yeshivas are also entitled to textbook. And then, of course, there's just the core issue of, of, of jobs. There were very, very few Orthodox Jews working in the district before we were elected. We've tried to write that again, all in accordance with civil service and with laws, et cetera. Um, and uh, then there's just the issue of, of who can run it better. And I think that the public, including now the public school parents in our district, have spoken on this. They've, they've re-elected us as well as the Orthodox, because we've done, a, I think, a very good job in keeping a lid on costs. And I'll just give you one statistic. When we took over, uh, our budget was $93 million, and the district next door was $84 million, which was really a wash because we have the same number of public school kids. We have more private school kids. So it really was apples to apples. Um, fast forward to today, eight years later, we're at $95 million. It went up $2 million bucks in eight years. They're at $112 million. It went up $28 million. So we're basically doing the same job they're doing, but for $26 million less. And we've sent two kids to the uh, Intel semifinal, uh, you know, for the science uh, contest. We, uh, our football team has won the Long Island Championship twice in my eight years. We won the, Long I- uh, the NASA County Championship five times. So the point being that our kids do have the resources to excel, and they have excelled, and we're very, very proud of that. So, you know, I take great offense to it. I think it's anti-American. That is very well said, very eloquent. I couldn't agree with you more. Uri Kaufman, Lawrence School Board trustee, thanks for joining us here, and hope to have you again as this issue percolates out there in the in New York State. Thank you so much, Michael. Bye. You got it. This is Spin Class, and as we close, I want to go to one uh, final knucklehead of the week type of clip, and that's going to go to – it's actually going to be two clips. We're going to talk about the America, the Affordable Care Act and its enactment this week. Let's cue that. It's a very clever, you know, basic exploitation of the of the of the lack of economic understanding of the American voter. And they were both in that past. The American voter was too stupid to understand the difference. 
This bill was written in a tortured way to make sure CBO did not score the mandate as taxes. If CBO scored the mandate as taxes, the bill dies. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call Okay, that's that's Jonathan Gruber talking about you guys. That's talking about all the people out there who either aren't paying enough attention to the Affordable Care Act or just aren't voting or aren't paying attention to the fact what government's doing because they're relying on all of us to have our heads in the sand to not know what's going on in order to pass big legislation that's going to cost us a tremendous amount of money. And this is a professor at MIT who's only doing his job in analyzing that. Now, of course, Democrats are distancing themselves from him. I don't know who he is. Our bill brings down rates. I don't know if you have seen Jonathan Gruber of MIT's analysis of the uh, what the comparison is to the status quo. Hold on. Hold on. That's Nancy Pelosi, the newly once again reelected minority leader of the House of Representatives, one of the most prominent politicians in the entire country if not the most prominent Democrat, certainly the most prominent Democratic woman, uh, aside from Hillary Clinton, saying on both ways, well, I don't know this guy, but yes, I know this guy. So this is, as Dan Gerstein said earlier, politics is so cynical. It's so incredibly, uh, I guess, untransparent that people don't want to participate anymore. But I will say, it's just a closing thought, if you don't participate... That's what they want. They don't want you to know what's going on. They don't want you to be informed because if you are informed, you're going to make good decisions. And a lot of the politicians out there, like Nancy Pelosi, just think that people aren't paying attention. So final word for tonight. That's it. We had a big show and a lot going on. I want to thank everybody for joining us here on Spin Class. And we will see you in two weeks off for the Turkey Day holiday next week. Bye-bye.